By the mid-1970s, actor Cliff Robertson was well-established in Hollywood. He was in his 50s and at that point was effectively going between doing feature films like Midway and Three Days of the Condor alongside starring in high-profile TV movies. He was an Oscar winner and not only did he play John F. Kennedy in a movie, the 1963 war movie PT-109, he was actually handpicked by JFK himself to do it. In case you're wondering, Jackie Kennedy wanted Warren Beatty for the role. But in late 1977, Cliff Robertson would do something that would put him at odds with a major Hollywood studio and find himself out of work for three years for doing something that simply wasn't done at the time. He had seen something wrong and told the truth about it. My name is Dan Delgado, and on this episode, we're taking a look at what led to the blacklisting of Cliff Robertson. Welcome to the industry. Cliff Robertson passed away in 2011 at the age of 88. He may be best remembered these days for playing Uncle Ben in the Spider-Man series. You know, the ones with Tobey Maguire. It certainly wasn't the biggest role in the series, but he does get to say the most memorable line in the series. This guy, Flash Thompson, he probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power, comes great responsibility. By that point, Robertson was at the end of his long and storied career. Let's go back to the beginning. Clifford Parker Robinson III was born in 1923. His father was the heir to a tidy sum of ranching money and was rarely around, and his mother died young at the age of 21, succumbing to peritonitis. He served in the U.S. Merchant Marine in World War II, and after the war was over, he became a journalist and then eventually an actor. He made his motion picture debut in 1955 in the movie Picnic, starring William Holden. In the 1960s, he optioned the rights to a TV play he had done that was based on the book Flowers for Algernon. This would become the basis for his Oscar-winning role in the movie Charlie. In 1966, Robertson married heiress and actress Dina Merrill. She was the granddaughter of C.W. Post, the founder of Post Serial, and a very rich woman. Robertson himself was already independently wealthy at this point, and while he certainly enjoyed working as an actor, he wasn't someone who really needed Hollywood. He was the kind of guy who found Hollywood to be a bit superficial. He was the kind of guy who preferred living in New York and would only go to Los Angeles when making a movie. Fast forward to 1977. Robertson was in L.A. in February when he was filming a TV movie called Washington Behind Closed Doors. It was while he was filming this movie that he receives a 1099 tax form in the mail. Apparently, he had been paid $10,000 by Columbia Pictures and needed to pay taxes on it. The only problem here was that he had never gotten a check for $10,000, and he didn't do any work for Columbia the previous year. The amount didn't seem to be right either. This was not what he got paid for acting. It seemed like a mistake to him. Initially, that's what he chalked it up as, some sort of a simple error, had his assistant call Columbia Pictures to straighten it out. He didn't think it was anything to be concerned about at the time. But he did have his assistant contact Columbia to find out exactly what was this check for. And the initial response that came back was that it was money paid to Cliff Robertson for a promotional tour of the film Obsession. This was a thriller that he starred in that was released in 1976. And while Columbia did not make Obsession, it did distribute it. 
So the $10,000 was to cover his expenses while promoting it. That answer didn't sound right to Robertson. He had gone to three or four cities to promote Obsession, that's absolutely true, but he certainly didn't receive any check for it, and he certainly wasn't going to pay any taxes on it. Now he was getting curious. He wanted to really know what was going on. A second request was sent over to Columbia, this time asking any documentation regarding the check be sent along. And after several weeks, Columbia's accounting finally decided to take a look into the matter. They sent a copy of the check over to Robertson's assistant, who took one look at it and could tell it wasn't right. The signature was off, and it was signed Cliff Robertson, just like you'd see his name in the movies. But Robertson's official signature for things like this was Clifford P. Robertson. Columbia wasn't saying anything to Robertson, but internally there were people who had looked at the check and had recognized the signature. They knew it wasn't Cliff Robertson's. They thought it looked a lot like the signature of David Beagleman the president of Columbia Pictures. Beagleman had been running the movie and television division of Columbia for almost four years and was well regarded. In 1973, Columbia posted a loss of $50 million and was facing a potential bankruptcy. By 1977, thanks to new ownership and Beagleman's decision-making, the company was in the black and was expecting to have a big year. They were planning on releasing what they were banking on to be the biggest movie in their history at the time, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Beagleman was asked internally about the Robertson check and missing money. He said he remembered it and that he would handle the matter and, hey, listen, don't worry about it. Beagleman would then call Robertson personally to let him know that he was on the case and that he would find out what happened to the missing money. One of the things that you should know before we go any further is that there is some history here between Cliff Robertson and David Beagleman. Before he was running the movie division of Columbia Pictures, David Beagleman was an agent, and one of his clients was Cliff Robertson. In 1969, after Robertson won the Oscar for Charlie, he had a number of lucrative offers come in, but he wasn't interested in any of the roles he was being offered. Instead, Robertson wanted to make a movie about something that he was passionate about, aviation. What Robertson really wanted to do was to make a World War I movie called I Shot Down the Red Baron, I Think. It was a script that he had written himself, and he had an offer from a man in Ireland to use some authentic World War I airplanes. Excited about this project, Robertson made a deal with Cinerama Incorporated. This was the company that had distributed his Oscar-winning movie, Charlie. Robertson's understanding of the deal was this. Cinerama would give him $150,000. He would go to Ireland and shoot test footage using the vintage World War I airplanes. He would go and shoot some fight sequences and then bring it back. Cinerama would look at the footage and then decide whether or not they wanted to go forward with the movie. If they didn't want to make the movie, Robertson would then have the option of reimbursing Cinerama the $150,000, but he would also own the project outright. The problem was that by the time Robertson came back a few months later with the test footage done, Cinerama was not doing well financially. In fact, they asked Robertson for the $150,000 immediately. Now, Robertson claimed that he had an option to reimburse them, not an obligation. This became a big issue because Cinerama was in financial dire straits, was needing the $150,000. They were not going to let it go. 
This argument went on until, to Robertson's great surprise, David Beagleman, his agent, sided with Cinerama. He even went so far as to voluntarily swear on an affidavit that absolutely he had an obligation to pay Cinerama back. Cinerama would use that affidavit as the basis for a lawsuit against Robertson. They ultimately settled for $25,000 and another $25,000 if the Red Baron picture was ever made. It wasn't. But Robertson was incensed that his own agent would go against him in a case like that. Robertson testified in a sworn deposition, I had the feeling I was gradually being sandbagged. I felt I had been subverted by my own agent in my moment of despair, anguish, and shock. Not surprisingly, this ended David Beagleman's representation of Cliff Robertson. Now, here we are in 1977, and Beagleman is calling Robertson personally on the phone to tell him that he'll find out what happened to the missing $10,000. On June 7th, 1977, Robertson got the story. Or maybe I should say he got a story. According to Beagleman, it was a young man who was employed at the studio last year who embezzled it. Robertson was also informed that this young man had been confronted and had admitted it. The young man's father had even, in fact, came to Beagleman personally and begged him not to prosecute and promised full restitution. In light of this, Columbia had decided not to press charges against this poor young man. Robertson was also told that a notice had been sent to the IRS canceling the 1099 form, so the case was closed. And the story worked at first. But the more Robertson thought about it, the idea of a kid working at Columbia, having access to steal a check, write Cliff Robertson's name on it, a famous person no less, then walk into a bank and cash it. How could that happen? He wanted to know more and made some inquiries into the bank that had handled and cast the check, Wells Fargo. These inquiries came back with a different story. The check had been cashed for $10,000 worth of American Express Traveler's checks by Columbia Studios president David Beagleman, who had claimed that he was traveling with Cliff Robertson. Beagleman had a working relationship with the head of the entertainment industry at Wells Fargo, so this forgery was not really difficult to pass off. Inside Columbia, they had also uncovered what seemed to be a second embezzlement. In 1975, Beagleman had a check for $35,000 prepared for a man named Peter Choate. Choate was to go around the country and install special sound equipment for the release of the movie Tommy, an adaptation of the rock opera by The Who. It stood out as odd since the check request came from Beagleman directly and not someone in the technical department who normally would have handled such things. As it turned out, Peter Choate was not a sound designer who was going around the country installing equipment in movie theaters. He was an interior designer who had installed a screening room in Beagleman's house. Robertson initially did all the things he thought he was supposed to do. He spoke with the local authorities, but was ultimately convinced by Columbia Pictures to not go public with this story. They wanted to handle things in-house and They didn't want a scandal getting out in the press that the president of Columbia's movie and television division was embezzling $10,000 checks. They certainly didn't want to give the SEC, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, any reason to investigate. This seemed reasonable and true to their word. 
They put Bagelman on suspension on September 30th, 1977, while an investigation was conducted. It would last until December of 1977 and would uncover two more embezzlements. First, there is the $25,000 check to Pierre Groslou. This check was for consulting on the marketing of two movies that had been made in France, The Photographer and Madame Claude. However, Pierre Groslou was not a marketing consultant, but in reality was the maitre d' at one of Beagleman's favorite restaurants, Ma Maison. And Mr. Groslou had no knowledge of this check. This one, Beagleman tried to cover up with a series of forgeries, he took out a loan from a friend in order to put the money back, and had a fake telex supposedly from the office of Pierre Groslou in Saint-Tropez to cancel the contract. It didn't work. The fourth and the last embezzlement that was found was a forged check in the amount of $5,000 paid to Martin Ritt. Martin Ritt was a well-known movie director. He directed movies that you may know, such as The Long Hot Summer, HUD, Ombre, and Norma Ray, to name a few. Now, at the time of the $5,000 check, Ritt was actually working on a movie for Columbia, The Front, starring Woody Allen. And so checks going to him at that time would not have raised any alarms. It was only through studying Beagleman's handwriting that the investigative team realized it was a forgery. So why had he done it? Why had David Beagleman, who was commanding a six-figure salary, who was the head of the movie and television division at Columbia Pictures, stolen at least $75,000 over the last couple of years? While the investigation was going on, Beagleman had agreed to go to therapy, and the therapist had an answer. According to the therapist, he had a subconscious feeling of self-loathing. He felt so worthless that he could not handle his own success. And this feeling sets off a self-destruct mechanism which manifests itself in him doing things like stealing money and reveals a need to be caught and punished. While David Beagleman was the head of movies and television at Columbia, that was only one part of the company as a whole. Columbia Pictures International also had a music division, Columbia Records, and a pinball company named Gottlieb, among others. The man who ran all of this was Beagleman's boss, Alan Hirschfield. And Hirschfield wanted Beagleman out. He wanted to fire him immediately. And while the decision would ultimately be his to make, the rest of the Columbia Board of Directors favored reinstatement. After all, Beagleman wasn't really a thief. He was a guy with issues who needed help. He was their friend. He was the guy who came in in 1973 when the company was facing bankruptcy and through a string of hits had turned the studio around. Hirschfield was under tremendous pressure to reinstate Beagleman. And on December 19, 1977, Columbia Pictures put out a press release announcing they had done just that. Beagleman was back. The press release also mentioned that he had repaid $61,008 that he had obtained through improper means and that the emotional problems which had caused these acts along with ongoing therapy would not impair his ability to run the studio. It was shortly after this reinstatement that the Wall Street Journal ran a very detailed article about Beagleman's improper means of obtaining money. The article mentioned embezzlements and forgeries in the names Martin Ritt and Cliff Robertson. Cliff Robertson happened to 
read this article and was not happy. He thought he had done the right thing. David Beagleman was a criminal, and he notified his employers. He notified the authorities. And what had happened? Nothing. Beagleman was right back where he had started. And Cliff Robertson was not just going to let this go. He decided that any deal that he made to keep quiet was null and void once the Wall Street Journal started printing his name in articles about it. He decided to make a call to the Washington Post. On Christmas Day 1977, the Washington Post article ran. It was an interview with Cliff Robertson giving details on everything he knew about Columbia Pictures, David Beagleman, and Ford's checks. Over the next couple of months, Robertson would give a number of print interviews on the subject. But it was his television appearance on the Today Show in February of 1978 that really angered Columbia Pictures. And it was around this time that Robertson began getting warnings from studio insiders telling him to keep his mouth shut. This is Robertson talking just a couple of years before he passed away on that subject. I wasn't tattling, I wasn't squealing, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was refusing to be an accessory to high crime. I'll never forget, I had a phone call from a certain big mogul. And he said, you know, you want to play ball? Might be smart of you to play ball. And I said, there are three things you people, we were living in New York then, I said, the three things you people out there don't understand. One is the word no, because you buy yes, 365 days a year. And you buy bodies, you buy souls, you buy integrity. You think anything, everything, and anyone can be bought you wrong and the last thing you don't understand is the phrase you don't scare me because with your wicked mentality and the subsequent strength that you have through all your power and your money you think anybody you don't scare must be nuts I made it to the phone I said hey pal You see, the folks at Columbia Pictures still thought that they had a deal with Cliff Robertson to keep his mouth shut. But apparently that was out the window. Robertson's appearances on television and his willingness to talk about this situation kept the story in the public eye. And once the story went nationwide, the general consensus was that the L.A. law enforcement authorities had dropped the ball. But now, thanks to Cliff Robertson loudly blowing the whistle, the pressure was on them to finally do something about it. On March 31st, 1978, the L.A. District Attorney's Office finally brought charges officially against David Beagleman. Once it was known that charges were coming and the full story was getting out, Columbia backpedaled on their reinstatement and finally got rid of Beagleman. On June of 1978, Beagleman went before the Burbank Municipal Court after pleading no contest to a charge of grand theft. He ended up being sentenced to three years probation, a $5,000 fine, and a promise to stay in psychiatric therapy, and for community service, he had to make a short anti-drug film. One year later, Beagleman stood before the Burbank Municipal Court, but this time, things were different. The judge praised Beagleman for the short film that he had made as a part of his agreement. He then reduced the felony charge to a misdemeanor, and finally revoked the final two years of his probation. By January of 1980, Beagleman would again run a movie studio. This time it was MGM. His ability to pick hit movies had waned, and in 1982, after a string of flops like Pennies from Heaven, he was fired. 
He would start Gladden Productions and produce a number of movies in the 1980s like Mannequin, The Fabulous Baker Boys, and Weekend at Bernie's. However, Gladden Productions had so much fraud and financial troubles behind it that we could do an entire podcast just about this portion of Beagleman's life. Beagleman would end up jumping ship in the early 1990s when Gladden Productions had a lien placed against it for owing $90 million to a prominent French bank. So what do you do if Gladden Productions is no longer working? You pivot to a new company, Gladden Entertainment, and you act like everything is fine. But it wasn't, and the new version of Gladden didn't get off the ground. Beagleman became depressed about the failure of Gladden Entertainment. He would end up checking himself into the Los Angeles Century Plaza Hotel, and on August 9th, 1995, David Beagleman shot himself in the head. He was 73. Cliff Robertson didn't work for three years after blowing the whistle. He would spend some time doing lectures, commercials. I'd like to show you how science helped create a new Mercury Marquis standard of driving comfort for 79. And PSAs. When it comes to surgery like removal of tonsils, gallbladder, or hernia, if it isn't an emergency, why not get a second opinion? You have every right to another point of view. After all, it's your body. And isn't that worth a second opinion? When Hollywood stopped calling, he came up with an idea that he thought would get him back on a set. The idea? A sequel to his Oscar-winning role in Charlie. He spent a few months writing Charlie 2 and had a deal in place to get the picture made, not only acting this time, but directing the picture as well. The movie's backers ended up pulling out at the last minute, leaving the project in limbo. Even after he went back to work in Hollywood in the early 1980s, Cliff Robertson would still try to get a sequel to Charlie Made with no success. His first movie back was the 1983 MGM release Brainstorm. It should be noted that when Brainstorm was being made, MGM was being run by David Beagleman. Afterwards, Robertson's career had resumed almost as it had before. Once again, you could find him moving effectively between supporting roles in movies to high-profile TV projects. He would continue acting until 2007, his final role being a brief appearance in Spider-Man 3. For this podcast, I got in touch with a former associate of Robertson's and asked for a few quotes so I could further get an idea of the kind of man that he was. He politely declined, but told me that instead what I should do is use this clip of Cliff Robertson himself to get the point across. So here is Cliff Robertson on the effect that Hollywood has. I think we all recognize that we have a responsibility and uh, in Hollywood and filmmakers everywhere recognize that, sure, we have a responsibility to the stockholders of the company, we have a responsibility to the people who are putting the money up for the picture, we want to make money for them so that we can continue making money for them and for ourselves. But I think within that matrix of making money uh, goes a responsibility to make sure that our conscience is clear as to how we made that money. It's a little like a man saying, uh, well, I'm just giving the people what they want. Well, that's a little like a man saying this drug dealer standing outside the high school is simply giving the young people what they want. Well, who gave them the habit? Who made them the addicts of what they want? And I think we have to consider that, that we give these films of continual violence and continual prurient sex that are really not justified in many cases, some cases yes, but when we give them that kind of a diet, 
we are in effect developing a habit and these young people develop a habit and pretty soon they have an appetite for films like that and it's a continuing cycle so somewhere along the line we have to stop and uh, examine uh, film and what we're doing with our film very carefully Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. If you're interested in learning more about this story, and there is a lot more to this story, then you must pick up David McClintock's book, Indecent Exposure. This is a very straightforward, factual book that reads like a page-turner and not only gives in-depth details on the Cliff Robertson-David Beagleman story, but also about the corporate power struggle within Columbia Pictures that resulted from it. A lot of the information that you heard in this episode comes from this book. You can find Indecent Exposure on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Today's show was written, edited, and hosted by Dan Delgado. That's me. Music in this episode was by Jam Morgan, Max Toon, and Miguel Johnson. If you enjoyed this episode, then please feel free to tell a friend and let them know that the industry is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps. We'll be back again next week with another story about the things that went on in the industry. Good night.